Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. But I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, I got a pretty interesting email on this one. So I hope you guys find it just as interesting as I did. But note to the person who sent the email because you didn't want your name out here. Yes, I was totally singing Alanis Morissette's Isn't That Ironic? Don't you think? (laughs) All right. With that said... We will still be playing our drinking game. And as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours. So pick your poison accordingly. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Holmes? That's going to be a single shot. And every time I say green, that's going to be a double shot. All right, now that we have our business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So don your best sleuthing gear, and today Sherlockian is most appropriate. And let's dive into today's offering of The Mysterious Circumstances of the Strange Death of the Sherlock Holmes Fanatic Richard Green. Wow, that was a really long title. I might need to take a little nap. Okay, I'm all right. Some facts about Richard Green are pretty easy to discern. Those which illuminate the circumstances of his life rather than his death are pretty simple. He was born on July the 10th, 1953. He was the youngest of three. His father was Roger Lanslin Green, a best-selling children's author who popularized the Homeric myths and the legend of King Arthur and was also a close friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And Richard was raised near Liverpool, on land that had been given to his ancestors in 1093, and where his family has resided ever since. In fact, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was the American consul in Liverpool in the 1850s, visited the house one summer, and he described it in his English notebooks as such, and I quote, passing down a considerable extent of private road and finally reaching a lawn shaded with trees and closely shaven, you arrive at the door of Poulton Hall. Part of the mansion is three or four hundred years old. There is a strange old stately staircase with a twisted balustrade, much like that of an old province house in Boston. The drawing room looks like a very modern room, being beautifully painted, gilded, and paper-hung, with a white marble fireplace and rich furniture, so that the impression is that of newness, not of age, end quote. By the time Richard was born, however, the Green family was, and I quote, 
very English, a big house, and no money. The curtains were thin, the carpets were threadbare, and a cold draft often swirled through those majestic corridors. Green, who had a pale, pudgy face, was blind in one eye from a childhood accident and wore spectacles with tinted lenses. Intensely shy with a ferociously logical mind and a precise memory, he would spend hours roaming through his father's enormous library reading dusty first editions of children's books. And by the time he was 11, he had fallen under the spell of one Sherlock Holmes. Holmes was not the first great literary detective. No, that honor actually belongs to Edgar Allan Poe's Inspector Auguste Dupin. But Conan Doyle's hero was the most vivid exemplar of the fledgling genre, which Poe dubbed Tales of Ratiocination. Holmes is a cold, calculating machine. A man who is, as one critic put it, a tracker, a hunter down, a combination of bloodhound, pointer, and bulldog. The gaunt Holmes has no wife or children. As he explains, I am a brain, Watson. The rest of me is a mere appendix. Rigidly scientific, he offers no spiritual bromides to his bereaved clients. Conan Doyle reveals virtually nothing about his character's interior life. He is defined solely by his method. In short, he is the perfect detective. The superhero of the Victorian era, out of which he blasted with his deerstalker hat and Inverness cape. Richard read the story straight through, then read them again. His rigorous mind had found its match in Holmes and his science of deduction, which could wrest an astonishing solution from a single, seemingly unremarkable clue. All life is a great chain, the nature of which is known whenever we are shown a single link of it, Holmes explains in the very first story, A Study in Scarlet, which establishes a narrative formula that subsequent tales nearly always follow. A new client arrives at Holmes Baker Street consulting room. The detective stuns the visitor by deducing some element of his life by the mere observation of his demeanor or dress. In a case of identity, he divines that his client is a short-sighted typist by no more than the worn push upon her sleeves and the dint of a pince-nez at either side of her nose. After the client presents the inexplicable facts of the case, the game is afoot, as Holmes likes to say. Amassing clues that invariably boggle Watson, the story's more earthbound narrator, Holmes ultimately arrives at a dazzling conclusion, one that, to him, and him only, seems elementary. In the Red-Headed League, Holmes reveals to Watson how he surmised that an assistant pawnbroker was trying to rob a bank by tunneling underneath it. I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar, Holmes says, explaining that he then went to see the assistant. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled, and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was what they were burrowing for. 
I walked round the corner, saw the city and suburban bank abutted on our friend's premises, and felt that I had solved my problem. Following the advice that Holmes often gave to Watson, Green practiced how to see what others merely observed. He memorized Holmes' rules, as if they were catechism. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Never trust to general impressions, my boy, but concentrate yourself upon details. There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Not long after Green turned 13, he carried an assortment of artifacts from local junk sales and into the dimly lit attic of Poulton Hall. Part of the attic was known as the Martyr's Chamber and was believed to be haunted, having once been tenanted by a lady who was imprisoned there and persecuted to death for her religion, according to Hawthorne. Nevertheless, up in the attic, Green assembled his objects to create a strange tableau. There was a rack of pipes and a Persian slipper stuffed with tobacco. There was a stack of unpaid bills, which he stabbed into a mantle with a knife, so that they were pinned in place. There was a box of pills labeled poison, empty ammunition cartridges, and trompe-l'oeil bullet marks painted on the walls. A preserved snake, a brass microscope, and an invitation to the gasfitter's ball. Finally, outside the door of the room, Green hung a sign, Baker Street. Relying on the stray details sprinkled throughout Conan Doyle's stories, Green had pieced together a replica of Holmes and Watson's apartment, one so precise that it occasionally drew Holmes' aficionados from other parts of England. One local reporter described the uncanny sensation of climbing the 17 stairs, the same number specified in the stories, as a tape recording played in the background with the sounds of Victorian London. The rumble of cab wheels, the clopping of horses' hooves on cobblestones. By then, Green had become the youngest person ever inducted into the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, where members tend and sometimes dressed in period costumes. The first LARPers, that's right. Though Holmes had first appeared in print nearly a century earlier, he had spawned a literary cult unlike that of any other fictional character. Almost from his inception, readers latched on to him with a zeal that bordered on the mystical, as one Conan Doyle biographer noted. When Holmes made his debut in the 1887 Beaton's Christ Christmas Annual, a magazine of somewhat lurid fiction, it was considered not just a character but a paragon of the Victorian faith in all things scientific. He entered public consciousness around the same time as the development of the modern police force, at a moment when medicine was finally threatening to eradicate common diseases and industrialization offered to curtail mass power. He was the proof that indeed the forces of reason could triumph over the forces of madness. By the time Green was born, however, the worship of scientific thinking had been shattered by other fates. By Nazism, Communism, Fascism, just to name a few, which had often harnessed the power of technology to demonic ends. Yet, paradoxically, the more illogical the world seemed, the more intense the cult surrounding Holmes became. 
This symbol of a new creed had become a figure of nostalgia, a person in a fairy tale, as Green once put it. The character's popularity even surpassed the level of fame he had attained in Conan Doyle's day, as the stories were reenacted in some 260 movies, 25 television shows, a musical, a ballet, a burlesque, and 600 radio plays. Holmes inspired the creation of journals, memorabilia shops, walking tours, postage stamps, hotels, and themed ocean cruises. Edgar Edgar W. Smith, a former VP of General Motors and the first editor of the Baker Street Journal, which publishes scholarship on Conan Doyle's stories, wrote in his 1946 essay, What is it that we love in Sherlock Holmes? And I quote, We see him as the fine expression of our urge to trample evil and to set aright the wrongs with which the world is plagued. He is Galahad and Socrates bringing high adventure to our dull existences and calm judicial logic to our biased minds. He is the success of all our failures, the bold escape from our imprisonment. What has made this literary escape unlike any other, though, is that so many people conceive of Holmes as a real person. T.S. Eliot once observed, perhaps the greatest of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries is this, that when we talk of him, we invariably fall into that the fancy of his existence. Green himself wrote, Sherlock Holmes is a real character who lives beyond life's span and who is constantly rejuvenated. And at the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, Green was introduced to The Great Game, which Sherlockians had played for decades. It was built around the conceit that the story's true author was not Conan Doyle, but Watson, who had faithfully recounted Holmes' exploits. Once, at a gathering of the elite Baker Street Irregulars, which Green also had joined, a guest referred to Conan Doyle as the creator of Holmes, prompting one outraged member to exclaim, Holmes is a man! Holmes is a great man! If Green had to invoke Conan Doyle's name, he was told he should refer to him as merely Watson's literary agent. The challenge of the game was that Conan Doyle had often written the four Holmes novels and 56 short stories, the sacred writings, as Sherlockians called them, in haste, and they were plagued with inconsistencies that made them difficult to pass off as non-fiction. How, for instance, is it possible that in one story, Watson is described as having been wounded in Afghanistan in the shoulder by a Giselle bullet, though in another story he complains that the wound was actually in his leg? The goal was thus to resolve these paradoxes, using the same airtight logic that Holmes exhibits. Similar textual textual inquiries had already given birth to a related field known as Sherlockenia mock scholarship in which fans try to deduce everything from how many wives Watson has, one to five, to which University Holmes actually attended, surely Cambridge or Oxford. It has to be. As Green once conceded, quoting the founder of the Baker Street Irregulars, never had so much been written by so many for so few. After Green graduated from Oxford in 1975, he turned his attention to more serious scholarship. Of all the puzzles surrounding the sacred writings, the greatest one, 
Green realized, centered on the man whom the stories had long since eclipsed, Conan Doyle himself. Green set out to compile the first comprehensive bibliography, hunting down every piece of material that Conan Doyle wrote. Pamphlets, plays, poems, obituaries, songs, unpublished manuscripts, and letters to the editor. Green unearthed documents that had long been hidden behind the veil of history. In the midst of his research, Green discovered John Gibson was working on a similar project, and they agreed to collaborate. The resulting tome, published in 1983 by Oxford University Press, with a foreword by Graham Greene, is 712 pages long and contains notations on nearly every scrap of writing that Conan Doyle ever produced, down to the kind of paper in which the manuscript was bound. When the bibliography was done, Gibson continued in his job as a government property assessor. Green, however, had inherited a sizable sum of money from his family, who had sold part of their estate, and he used the bibliography as a launching pad for a biography of Conan Doyle. Writing a biography is akin to the process of detection, and Green started to retrace every step of Conan Doyle's life, as if it were an elaborate crime scene. During the 1980s, Green followed Conan Doyle's movements from the moment he was born on May 22nd of 1859 in a squalid part of Edinburgh. Green visited the neighborhood where Conan Doyle was raised by a devout Christian mother and a dreamy father. Green also amassed an intricate paper record that showed his subject's intellectual evolution. He discovered, for instance, that after Conan Doyle studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh and fell under the influence of rational thinkers like Oliver Wendell Holmes, who undoubtedly inspired the surname of Conan Doyle's detective, he renounced Catholicism, vowing, never will I accept anything which cannot be proved to me. In the early 80s, Green published the first of a series of introductions to Penguin Classics editions of Conan Doyle's previously uncollected works, many of which he had helped to uncover himself. The essays, written in a clinical style, began garnering him attention outside the insular subculture of Sherlockians. One essay, running more than 100 pages, was a small biography of Conan Doyle onto itself. In another, Green cast further light on the short story, The Case of the Man Who Was Wanted, which had been found in a chest more than a decade after Conan Doyle's death and was claimed by his widow and sons to be the last unpublished Holmes story. Some experts had wondered if the story was a fake, and even if Conan Doyle's two sons, in search of money to sustain their lavish lifestyles, had forged it. Yet Green conclusively showed that the story was neither by Conan Doyle nor a forgery. Instead, it was written by an architect named Arthur Whitaker, who had sent it to Conan Doyle in hopes of collaborating. Scholars described Green's essays variously as dazzling, unparalleled, and the ultimate compliment, Holmesian. Still, Green was determined to dig deeper for his now highly anticipated biography. As the mystery writer Ian Pierce has observed, Conan Doyle's hero acts in nearly the same fashion as a Freudian analyst, piecing together his client's hidden narratives, which he alone can perceive. In a 1987 review of Conan Doyle's autobiography, Memories and Adventures, which was published in 1924, Green noted, 
It is as if Conan Doyle, whose character suggested kindliness and trust, had a fear of intimacy. When he describes his life, he omits the inner man. To reveal this inner man, Green examined facts that Conan Doyle rarely, if ever, spoke to himself, most notably that his father, an epileptic and an incorrigible alcoholic, was eventually confined to an insane asylum. Yet the more Green tried to plumb his subject, the more he became aware of the holes in his knowledge of Conan Doyle. He didn't want just to sketch Conan Doyle's story with a series of anecdotes. He wanted to know everything about the man. In the draft of an early mystery story, The Surgeon of Gaster Fall, Conan Doyle writes of a son who has locked his raving father inside a cage. But this incident was excised from the published version. Had Conan Doyle been the one to commit his father to the asylum? Was Holmes's mania for logic a reaction to his father's genuine mania? And what did Conan Doyle mean when he wrote in his deeply personal poem, The Inner Room, that he has thoughts he dare not say? Green wanted to create an immaculate biography, one in which each fact led inexorably to the next. He wanted to be both Watson and Holmes to Conan Doyle, to be his narrator and his detective. Yet he knew the words of Holmes, data, 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 I can't make bricks without clay. And the only way to succeed, he realized, was to track down the lost archive. Richard Lyson Green, the world's foremost expert on Sherlock Holmes, believed that he had finally solved the case of the missing papers. Over the past two decades, he had been looking for a trove of letters, diary entries, and manuscripts written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Holmes. The archive was estimated to be worth nearly $4 million and was said to, by some to carry a deadly curse, like the one in the most famous Holmes story, The Hounds of the Baskervilles. The papers had disappeared after Conan Doyle died in 1930, and without them, no one had been able to write a definitive biography, a task that Green was determined to complete. Many scholars feared that the archive had been discarded or destroyed, as the London Times noted earlier. Its whereabouts had become a mystery as tantalizing as any to unfold at 221B Baker Street, the fictional den of Holmes and his fellow sleuth Dr. Watson. Not long after Green launched his investigation, he discovered that one of Conan Doyle's five children, Adrian, had, with the other heir's agreement, stashed the papers in a locked room of a chateau that he owned in Switzerland. Green then learned that Adrian had speared some of the papers out of the chateau without his siblings' knowledge, hoping to sell them to collectors. In the midst of this scheme, he died of a heart attack, giving rise to the legend of the curse. After Adrian's death, the papers apparently vanished, and whenever Green tried to probe further, he found himself caught in an impenetrable web of heirs, including a self-styled Russian princess, who seemed to have deceived and double-crossed each other in, in their efforts to control the archive. For years, Green continued to sort through evidence and interview relatives until one day, the muddled trail led to London and the doorstep of Jean Conan Doyle, the youngest of the Arthur's children. Tall and elegant with silver hair, she was an imposing woman in her late 60s. Something very strong and forceful seems to be at the back of that wee body, her father had written of Jean when she was five. Her will is tremendous. 
whereas her brother Adrian had been kicked out of the British Navy for insubordination, and her elder brother Dennis was a playboy who had sat out the Second World War in America, she had become an officer in the Royal Air Force and was honored in 1963 as a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. She invited Green into her flat, where a portrait of her father, with his walrus mustache, hung near the fireplace. Green had almost as great an interest in her father as she did, and she began sharing her memories as well as family photographs. She asked him to return, and one day, Green later told friends, she showed him some boxes that had been stored in a London solicitor's office. Peering inside them, he said, he had glimpsed part of the archive. Dame Jean informed him that, because of an ongoing family dispute, she couldn't yet allow him to read the papers, but she said that she intended to bequeath nearly all of them to the British Library so that scholars could finally examine them. After she died in 1997, Green eagerly awaited their transfer, but nothing happened. Then Green opened the London Sunday Times and was shocked to read that the lost archive had turned up at Christie's auction house and was to be sold for millions of dollars by three of Conan Doyle's distant relatives. Instead of going to the British Library, the contents would be scattered among private collectors around the world who might keep them inaccessible to scholars. Green was sure that a mistake had been made and hurried to Christie to, to inspect the materials. Upon his return, he told friends that he was certain that many of the papers were the same as those he had uncovered. What's more, he alleged that they had been stolen, and he had proof. Over the next few days, he approached members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, one of hundreds of fan clubs devoted to the detective. He alerted other so-called so Sherlockians, including various American members of the Baker Street Irregulars, an invitation-only group that was founded in 1934 and named after the street urchins Holmes regularly employed to ferret out information. Green also contacted the more orthodox scholars of Conan Doyle, or Dolians, about the sale. Green shared with these scholars what he knew about the archive's providence, revealing what he considered the most damning piece of evidence, a copy of Dame Jean's will, which stated, I give to the British Library all my late father's original papers, personal manuscripts, diaries, engagement books, and writings. Determined to block the auction, the makeshift group of amateur sleuths presented its case to members of Parliament. Toward the end of the month, as the group's campaign intensified and its objections appeared in the press, Green hinted to his sister Priscilla West that someone was threatening him. Later, he sent her a cryptic note containing three phone numbers and the message, Please keep these numbers safe. He also called a reporter from the London Times warning that something might happen to him. And on the night of Friday, March 26th, he had dinner with a longtime friend, Lawrence Keene, who later said that Green had confided in him that an American was trying to bring him down. After the two men left the restaurant, Green told Keene that they were being followed and pointed to a car behind them. That same evening, Priscilla West phoned her brother and got his answering machine. She called repeatedly the next morning, but he still didn't pick up. Alarmed, she went to his house and knocked on the door. There was no response. After several more attempts, she called the police, who came and broke open the entrance. 
Downstairs, the police found the body of Green lying on his bed, surrounded by Sherlock Holmes books and posters with a cord wrapped around his neck. He had been garroted. Gibson said that he had attended the coroner's inquest and taken careful notes, and as he spoke, he picked up a magnifying glass beside him and peered through it at several crumpled pieces of paper. I read everything on scraps, he said. The police, he said, had found only a few unusual things at the scene. There was a cord around Green's neck, a black shoelace. There was a wooden spoon near his hand and several stuffed animals on the bed, and there was a partially empty bottle of gin. The police found no sign of forced entry and assumed that Green had committed suicide, yet there was no note. And Sir Colin Barry, the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences, testified to the coroner that, in his 30-year career, he had seen only one suicide by garrote. Self-garroting is extremely difficult to do, he explained. People who attempt it typically pass out before they are, they are asphyxiated. Moreover, in this instance, the cord was not a thick rope, but a shoelace, making the feat even more unlikely. Phone records showed that Gibson and Green had spoken repeatedly during the week before his death, but Gibson was never questioned. There was something else, something critical. On the eve of his death, Green had spoken to his friend Keane about an American who was trying to ruin him. The following day, Gibson said, he had called Green's house and heard a strange greeting on the answering machine. Instead of getting Richard's voice in this sort of Oxford accent, which had been on the machine for over a decade, I got an American voice that said, sorry, not available. And Gibson said, what the hell is going on? I thought I must have dialed the wrong number, so I dialed again, slowly. And I got the American voice again. Gibson said that Green's sister had heard the same recorded greeting, which is one reason she had rushed to his house. The police, Gibson said, had not conducted any forensic tests or looked for fingerprints, and the coroner, who had once attended a meeting of the Sherlock Holmes Society to conduct a mock inquest of the murder from a Conan Doyle story in which a corpse is discovered in a locked room, found himself stymied. Gibson said that the coroner had noted there was not enough evidence to ascertain what had happened, and as a result, the official verdict regarding whether Green had killed himself or had been murdered was left open. Within hours of Green's death, Sherlockians seized upon the mystery, as if it were another case in the canon. In a web chat room, one person who called himself Inspector wrote, As for self-garroting, it is like trying to choke oneself to death by your own hands. Others invoked the curse, as if only the supernatural could explain it. Murder, Owen Dudley Edwards, a highly regarded Conan Doyle scholar, said, I fear that is what the preponderance of the evidence points to. Edwards was pursuing, pursuing an informal investigation into Green's death. Edwards had worked with Green to stop the auction, which took place in spite of the uproar almost two months after Green's body was found. Edwards said of his friend, I think he knew too much about the archive. Edwards, who has written num numerous books, including The Quest for Sherlock Holmes, an acclaimed account of Conan Doyle's early life, said of Green, he was the world's greatest Conan Doyle expert. I have the authority to say it, Richard ultimately became the greatest of us all. That is a firm and definitive statement of someone who knows. When Green hurried to Christie's after the auction of the papers was announced, he discovered that the archive was as rich and as abundant as he had, ma had imagined. 
Among the thousands of items were fragments of the first tale that Conan Doyle wrote at the age of six. Illustrated logs from when Conan Doyle was a surgeon on a Scottish whaling ship in the 1880s. Letters from Conan Doyle's father, a brown envelope with a cross and the name of his dead son inscribed upon it. The manuscript of Conan Doyle's first novel, which was never published, and a missive from Conan Doyle to his brother. Green tried to piece together why the archive was about to slip into private hands once more. According to Green's family, he typed notes in his computer, re-examining the trail of evidence, which he thought proved that the papers belonged to the British Library. He worked late into the night, frequently going without sleep. None of it, however, seemed to add up. Several hours before Green died, he called his friend Utichin at home. Green had asked him to find a tape of an old BBC radio interview which quoted one of Conan Doyle's heirs saying the archive should be given to the British Library. Utichin said he found the tape, but there was no such statement on the recording. Green became apoplectic and accused his friend of conspiring against him, as if he were another Moriarty. When th then, John Gibson seemed to reverse his belief on Green's death. He announced, I think it really was a suicide. He had sifted through the data, and there was mounting evidence that his rationalist friend was betraying signs of irrationality in the last week of his life. There was the fact that there was no evidence of forced entry into Green's home. And most critically, of the wooden spoon by Green's hand, if someone else had garroted him, why would he need the spoon? The killer could simply just use his hands. In detective fiction, the reverse scenario generally turns out to be true. A suicide is found to have been murder. As Holmes declares in The Resident Patient, This is no suicide. It is a very deeply planned and cold-blooded murder. There is, however, one notable exception. It is eerily enough in one of the last Holmes mystery, The Problem at Thorbridge. A story Green once cited in an essay. A wife is found lying dead on a bridge, shot at the head at point-blank range. All the evidence points to one suspect, the governess, with whom the husband had been flirting. Yet Holmes shows that the wife had not been killed by anyone, Rather enraged by jealousy over her husband's illicit overtures to the governess, she had killed herself and framed the woman whom she blamed for her misery. Of all Conan Doyle's stories, it digs deepest into the human psyche and its criminal motivations. As the governess tells Holmes, When I reached the bridge, she was waiting for me. Never did I realize till that moment how this poor creature hated me. She was like a madwoman. Indeed, I think she was a mad woman, subtly mad with the deep power of deception which insane people must have. Could Green have been so enraged with the loss of the archive that he might have done something similar, and even tried to frame the American whom he blamed for ruining his relationship with Dame Jean and for the sale of the archive? Gibson claims, don't you see? He staged the whole thing. He created the perfect mystery. Unfortunately, unlike in detective stories, we have to live without answers. And on that note, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you will take some time to reach out and share your thoughts about today's episode. I hope you loved it. 
You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to share your thoughts about today's episode, or you're bored and you need somebody to talk to, drop me a line, because I really do reply to every single email. And on that note, it's all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.